You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Yo, if you want to support the show, consider going over to Patreon. This is where you can get better access to myself, the behind the scenes look at the show, voting on show topics, and so much more. You can find the link to the Patreon in the description below. It's dark. The ground is damp and soft. Trees blow in the wind, and the rains do not let up. Any fire that remains unextinguished casts a glow over a few hundred enslaved Africans communing and participating in a religious ceremony. They all come from different African tribes. Some don't even speak the same language, but their shared feelings are understood without the need for words. They are gathered together to reclaim freedom over their spirits, minds, and bodies. This is the story of the Haitian Revolution. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. It's late. Duddy Bookman and Cecil Fateman, the well-known voodoo priest and priestess of this land, galvanize the crowd. Duddy Bookman comes forward and proclaims, The God of the white man causes him to commit crimes. Our God asks only good works of us. But this God, who is so good, orders revenge. He will direct our hands. He will aid us. Throw the image away of the God of the whites who thirsts for our tears and listen to the voice of liberty that speaks in the heart of all of us. Cecil Fateman emerges with a black pig for sacrifice. Their promise and plan for freedom is vowed and sealed in blood. Who could have imagined that events which took place nearly 300 years prior would bring them to this moment? A clumsy Italian named Christopher Columbus stumbling onto this land and calling it Hispaniola in 1492 would cause them the very pain and suffering they now know and must fight against. But the original inhabitants didn't call it Hispaniola. The Arawak called it the Land of Mountains. They too had no idea the amount of diseases and suffering these self-proclaimed explorers would cause them either. The Spanish were fueled by greed and conquest. Hispaniola quickly became unappealing to them. It didn't have gold like Mexico did. 
Over time, the Spanish became less and less interested in the island, allowing it to become overrun by French pirates who began to set up shop. The Spaniards moved to the eastern part of the island, and in 1697, Spain gave over one-third of the island to France. This portion was now called Saint-Domingue. The area was rich in coffee, sugar, and indigo. They needed someone to work the land and harvest these cash crops, but any remaining tribes dwindled. The French turned their attention to the African continent for their slave labor. It is estimated that France imported tens of thousands of Africans for slave labor each year. 60% of the world's coffee and 40% of the world's sugar came from Saint-Domingue at this time, and France was profiting enormously from these industries. And since time is money, it kept going. Those who survived the voyage were branded on their cheeks like cattle and put to work immediately. If you were enslaved in Saint-Domingue, you could expect to labor from sunup to sundown. Ants biting at your hungry and overheated body from the roots of the sugarcane. The leaves cut at your skin. During harvest season, you worked for 48 hours straight to prevent any sugarcane from spoiling. On worse days, your hand could get caught in a sugar roller or burned by the vats of boiling sugar. You were provided with less than the bare minimum in terms of provisions. If you were a new arrival, you would probably die in the first few years. If you were born on the island, it was a miracle to make it past 21. But if slaves were so valuable, why would France let them die and treat them so poorly? Well, the French found it more economical to bring in new labor rather than have to feed, clothe, and house an enslaved person for their entire life. It was easier to work the ones that would succumb to a quick death and then just bring in more. It's not surprising that anyone who could escape did and found refuge in the mountains, now mostly inhabited by the remaining Tainos, the indigenous people. There, they formed their own society of free people called the Maroons. They took care of each other and used their shared knowledge and abilities to survive. Their numbers grew and grew. One day, a man by the name of Francois Mackendal joined them in 1751. He was one of the enslaved who lost their arm due to a sugar mill accident. Mackendall was an herbalist and rumored practitioner of voodoo as well. He was skilled in foraging and was able to identify herbs that were poisonous. He unified the mountainous communities and supplied them with poison to pass along to those working on the plantation. This poison was then fed to their unsuspecting enslavers. He and his fellow Maroons would raid plantations in the middle of the night, killing white people and freeing any enslaved people. He was considered supernatural to his people and a major threat to the colonizers. His biggest plot was to poison the water supply, but it was foiled after they captured and mercilessly tortured a woman in this community for information. He was captured and burned at the stake in the capital city, right in the middle of the town square. But his believers were not convinced that he died that day. They believed his spirit rose from the flames, and at the time of his death, over 6,000 white people had been murdered. The number of dead on the island would only grow from there. Truthfully, everyone was unhappy. The wealthy whites wanted order and profits. The free people of color were growing more and more agitated with their counterparts. Even one drop of African blood could place someone further down the social hierarchy. The working class whites wanted access to the slave economy, and the enslaved just wanted freedom. 
but events across the seas were about to shake things up for everyone. Thousands of miles away, across the Atlantic Ocean, in 1789, France was in the middle of a revolution. Food scarcity and high taxation pushed the working class over the edge. Fighting and screams filled the streets. Hungry citizens rioted and stormed the homes of wealthy elites. By 1793, France was in ruins, and both King Louis XIV and his wife, Marie Antoinette, had been executed publicly. A new government emerged as the National Assembly. They drafted the Declaration of the Rights of Man. The Declaration of the Rights of Man was truly radical even by today's standards, depending on who you ask. It stated that all men are born free and that the aim of all political association is the preservation of the natural and imprescriptible rights of man. These rights are liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression. Liberty consists in the freedom to do everything which injures no one else. Hence, the exercise of the natural rights of each man has no limits except those which assure to the other members of the society the enjoyment of the same rights. These limits can only be determined by law. Imagine how something like this could be applied today. The right to resist oppression and have security as a right. To live freely as who you are so as long as no other person is being harmed. Word of this document spread all the way back across the Atlantic to the island, from newspapers in France to breakfast tables in Saint-Domingue. Those who were enslaved and could read would sneak a peek. Sailors gossiped about the happenings in France on their ships. Conversations were overheard around town. The declaration was remarkable, and to the enslaved, it meant they had a right to resist their bondage and seek liberty and security. Although, if you were to ask an enslaver, they would tell you, they had a right to their property. The question was, are people property? As a result, the free people of color petitioned the French government for voting rights and were granted their request in 1791, with a few conditions. This enraged the white people who felt their social standing was being threatened. In the background of this conflict, the enslaved were unifying and exercising their rights. Here's where we arrive at the ceremony referenced at the beginning of the episode on that dark and stormy August night, 1791. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. After the ritual took place, the people took up arms. Over 100,000 stormed the plantations. They recruited even more people along the way. The enslaved population already outnumbered free people and white people 10 to 1, so it wasn't hard to maintain an advantage. In the dark of the night, they took back the plantations, killing anyone in their way on sight. They burned any machinery and farmland to the ground. Fire sprang up in every direction. Screams of horror and bodies filled the streets. Those who could flee did so and had no choice but to watch the island burn from a distance. Plumes of smoke floated into the skies. Some historians say that sailors sitting in the harbor could read their mail by the firelight 20 miles away. In a little over a week, the entire north region of Saint-Domingue was in the hands of the oppressed. After a few months, at least 4,000 whites had been murdered and over 1,000 coffee farms and 184 sugar plantations were destroyed. By 1792, the newly free people controlled one-third of Saint-Domingue. And this is where we meet a new hero in the story, a man by the name of Toussaint Louverture. 
Louvator was born into slavery but learned how to read and write. He worked his way up the social ladder and became trusted among the French. Louvator was involved in the initial uprising but still wanted to find compromise between the current system and the demands of those enslaved. He even helped his former master escape the carnage. But soon he felt enough was enough and it was time for him to leave his family behind and help with the war effort by leading his people. The fighting continued on and French newspapers printed wild stories about the takeover. They reported that French men had been hanged and beheaded with their heads placed on spikes to send a message. Saint-Domingue was completely collapsing into chaos. France sent in troops to suppress the rebellion, but they were failing to keep up with Louvertour's strategies and often contracted deadly cases of yellow fever. The white people in the southern part of the island teamed up with Britain. They believed France was failing them and asked Britain for assistance in exchange for their loyalty. Spain also joined the fight because their land was on the same island and they did not want this conflict spilling over to their side. Spain turned to Louverture in an attempt to win him over. He agreed to become an officer in their military. It was everyone versus France. And it worked. At first. In 1794, France declared an end to slavery. This was enough for Louverture to switch sides and fight for the French. They also outlawed slavery in all French territories, not just Saint-Domingue. With the help of Louverture and his army, the French drove Britain and Spain out of the territory. Meanwhile, a decent majority of the upper class fled to the United States and other French territories, but the pro-slavery United States wasn't exactly happy to have them. Slavery was still in full swing in the States. Whether you lived in the North or South, owned people or bought button dresses, everyone was benefiting from the slave-based economy. The French began sharing stories and experiences about why they fled, and in some cases, critiques of the U.S. government. In 1798, the U.S. implemented Alien and Sedition Acts to suppress the French seeking asylum. Shocker. Not long after, the majority of the French returned to France. President John Adams, on the other hand, wasn't the biggest fan of slavery, and he saw the rebel nation as a major potential trade partner. But at this point, the relationship between France and the United States was complicated. The French and the U.S. were at the start of the Quasi-War. Not an official beef per se, but animosity for sure. We can iron out the details of that conflict in another episode. The bottom line is their interest in a business relationship with Saint-Domingue wouldn't make the tensions between the United States and France any better. The day after Christmas 1798, a top-secret dinner was held with President John Adams' Secretary of State Timothy Pickering and Joseph Bunnell a representative and supporter of Louverture. His wife, a Creole woman named Marie Franchette, also accompanied him on his diplomatic trip. Later, he would have a meal with the president himself. By 1799, they would reach an agreement that the United States would trade with Saint-Domingue, thus inadvertently supporting the movement. Saint-Domingue had a lot to prove. Although things were relatively under control in terms of battle, Louverture felt pressure to prove the territory was still useful to France without the old system. He had to prove that Saint-Domingue would still be profitable without slavery. Everyone was watching, and some nations even hoped for their downfall. Another shocker. So he did something unpopular. He said everyone had to get back to work. It was time to restore the land and rebuild the old machinery. But this time, people were paid for their work. Harsh treatments were outlawed and children were no longer born or sold into servitude. Still, most people resented the fact that they were back on the same plantations doing the same work they fought against. 
Many were hesitant to do so, but Louverture saw the use of military force as a solution to this problem. He even brought back some of the white elites for their knowledge and experience with the economy. And people were beginning to question his intentions. André Rigaud, a mixed-race ally of Louverture, managed the southern area of Saint-Domingue on his behalf. But soon, Louverture began to see him as a threat. Rigaud, being of mixed race, was not a fan of the emerging power structure. See, under the old system, wealthy people of color were just under the white elites and over the poorer whites. Both Louverture and Rigaud launched smear campaigns against one another. And in June 1799, Rigaud began to march north to take over territory under the supervision of Louverture. Louverture retaliated with the aid of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was known for his ruthless nature. The bloodshed, assassination attempts, and merciless violence earned this conflict the name the War of Knives. Meanwhile, back in France, Napoleon Bonaparte was running things. He kept an eye on the conflict in Saint-Domingue. He even issued a statement acknowledging Louverture as general-in-chief, which ended the War of Knives. It wasn't a big deal so long as Louverture didn't cross the line, which he inevitably did. Louverture felt he could expand his vision of society to the entire island of Hispaniola. He invaded the Spanish side of the island without France's permission. Napoleon was not a fan of this, and he felt that the rights of the people of France didn't really apply to the people of Saint-Domingue or any colony for that matter. So, Napoleon, who was trying to build an empire, and he intended to milk Saint-Domingue for all its resources and everything it was worth. And what better way for him to do that than to reinstitute slavery? Louverture took things a step further and drafted his own constitution in 1801 and declared himself general for life. Louverture might as well have slapped Napoleon in the face with this act. Napoleon hated looking weak and had to show Saint-Domingue who was in charge. He sent his brother-in-law, Charles Victor Emmanuel Leclerc, along with 20,000 troops to Saint-Domingue. They arrived in January 1802. In May of 1802, Napoleon declared slavery would return, and Louverture and his troops were prepared to give Napoleon one hell of a fight. The war was becoming a family affair. The nephew of Louverture, Charles Belair, and his wife, Sanit Belair, became huge assets in the fight. Sanid quickly became a lieutenant and later a sergeant in Louverture's army. Both she and her husband supported the people of the Leartiboni region of Saint-Domingue. Unfortunately, they would join the list of those dead. October 1802, they were both captured and sentenced to death. Charles was killed by firing squad while Sanid watched. Women were traditionally beheaded, but Sanid refused and approached her fate eyes wide open and heart full of bravery. She demanded she be executed in the same fashion as her husband. Her final words were liberty, no slavery. She was 21 years old. Things continued to take a dark turn. In June of 1802, Louverture would be captured and sent to France. He would spend the remainder of his life in a French jail without any regards for his rank or diplomacy. He hoped he would have been able to reach an agreement and retire in peace but he would die of pneumonia one year later in April of 1803. Without their leader, the situation was getting serious, if it wasn't already serious enough. Jean-Jacques Dessalines assumed control of the armies after Louverture was arrested. Everyone, regardless of complexion, put aside their differences and banded together to drive the French out for good. Napoleon couldn't afford to fight anymore. He was broke. 
The death toll from fighting and disease was astronomical. The French were severely underprepared for the level of skill Louverture's army possessed and the fight and passion that the people of Saint-Domingue possessed overall. He needed to turn his attention to the war that France was fighting with Britain. He retreated in November of 1803. Of the 40,000 troops that were originally sent by France, only 8,000 returned. Charles Victor Emmanuel Leclerc was among the deceased. Napoleon also needed a new cash source and decided to sell the United States a decent-sized plot of land for $15 million or $400 million in today's money. That small chunk of land would go on to become Arkansas, Iowa, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Minnesota, Louisiana, New Mexico, Texas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, or the Louisiana Purchase. This was a win for then-President Thomas Jefferson, who actively supported slavery and the French. Shocker. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After almost 13 years of fighting, the inhabitants of this newly free land stood amongst themselves. Their struggle would later be known as the first and most successful slave rebellion of this magnitude. They were also now the second nation to win their independence in the Western Hemisphere. Jean-Jacques Dessalines declared himself general for life. And on January 1st, 1804, the island was named Haiti, a nod to its original name. But was this really it? Had all of their courage and tenacity truly paid off? What would become of them? What would become of their country? There is a long road ahead, and this is only the beginning of Haiti's story. Until next time. This episode was written by Jordan Howard and produced and narrated by Andre White. If you liked today's episode, consider leaving a rating, a like, and review. We're almost to 1,000 ratings on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so I appreciate everybody who's left the review. It means a lot and goes a long way. Also consider subscribing to the YouTube channel and the Instagram. You can find all of that information in the show notes below. Peace. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.